Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. I'm Dr. Michael Ray, a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I'm joined by our two co-hosts, Dr. Michael Amato, a physical therapist at Boston Wellness, and Dr. Derek Miles, also a physical therapist out at Stanford. This is episode one of our podcast, and we hope to provide some background about ourselves as well as why we are starting this podcast. Um, what we're going to try to do is hopefully just have a pretty relaxed conversation with one another, like we're at the bar drinking uh, real beer, such as like stouts and porters, none of that IPA shit. And then, uh, yeah, tell you a little bit about ourselves, uh, how we got to where we're at in clinical practice, and uh, hopefully it's a useful conversation. And then we'll talk about a little bit of the nuance of pain. How's it going, guys? Good. How's it going, Mike? Not too bad. So Derek is out in California, so it's like, what is it, 820 over there? Mm-hmm. So you're wide awake. Yes, starting the caffeination yeah. process right now. There you go. And Amato is saying he's already seen like 20 patients this morning. Yeah, I feel like I've had a full day. You know, I woke up at 4 a.m. and I couldn't fall back asleep. Oh, that's <laughs> no, that's no bueno. Um, so I think it would be good for like people to have an understanding as well uh, how we know one another, um, which I can start that off. Uh, I met Derek in... 2015 into 2015 i was a young uh new grad which i still consider myself a new grad going into clinical practice and met derek on the clinical athlete forum and he was basically this dude that was challenging everyone and i was like holy fuck who is this asshole and uh we started we started chatting like via text and had a lot of like similar views about stuff and then he was uh inundating me with research evidence about things and reading through his discussions on the forum. And I was like, wow, this guy actually, A, has a pretty good grasp on things, it sounds like, in clinical practice. And B, since a lot of research evidence to back it up, this is pretty cool. So we formed a friendship over the years and uh, since then have just been bugging the shit out of each other uh, nonstop. Anyone who's familiar with Derek and I and hears us communicate publicly, they would probably think we're brothers and we absolutely hate one another. But uh, it's quite the opposite. Um, and then I met Michael uh, Amato uh, through the forum as well. Uh, Amato, was it, what was it, 2017 that I think we met in person? Didn't you go to one of our seminars? Yeah, we. Uh, you guys came to Worcester and did your um, sports rehab seminar. And that's when we first met Derek, Derek as well. That's what I thought. Nice. And so yeah. we kind of been in touch since then. And uh, uh, Amato is very much a pain geek like me, it seems like, and then also a philosophy nerd. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of conversations on the side on a regular basis. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I feel like you guys just enabled my interest. That's uh, <laughs> the big thing here. In almost four years, that was probably the closest uh, Mike has ever come to giving me a compliment. So I'm going to just hold on to that with what I can right now. <laughs> would you Would you like a moment of silence to uh, just like revel in that? Oh, I was basking in it while you guys were talking. It was great. <laughs> I felt my endogenous opioids release. Whoa. Wow. Well, it's a little, little early for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I literally – so uh, we have – Obviously, we're affiliated with Barbell Medicine, and um, we have a pain and rehab forum where people can ask us like completely free questions, and we do our best to help them out as it relates to pain, rehab, and training. And one guy's a Clemson fan, and he asked a question, and I was like, I'm going to violate one of my life rules and help a Clemson fan. And uh, in doing so, I told them payment had to be they attend next year's Tiger Burn. And I, I was like, I got to send this to Derek, so instantly he gets that forwarded to him. And I like uh, Jordan's stance on my love of college sports is his normal statement is you're basically saying your T-shirt is better than someone else's T-shirt, at which point he has a valid point on that. But uh, he's obviously never been to a Clemson or Florida tailgate because it's not so much the T-shirt is our barbecue and beer tends to be better than the others. Well, I mean, Clemson's pretty much just like, hey, guys, let's meet up at this pasture, right? Like out in the middle of nowhere. And you guys, you know, pretend play football. Well, we don't pretend play football. I pretend grill meat for real. Um, I mean, Clemson is in the middle of a pasture, but, you know, yes. I, I'm from West Virginia. So that kind of just feels like home to me. There you go. 
so let's try to, I guess, go through some of these questions uh, so people can get a little more familiar with us. I just have a series of questions. It'll be like playing 20 questions today. Uh, but let's go to you first, Amato, with how did you become a clinician and what was your journey? So it probably started a long time ago. I went to actually went to like a medical science high school program um, like a long time ago. And um, like through that experience, we got to take like, like a college level courses that would have been like essentially pre-med courses. And um, one of my friends was interested in like the uh, athletic training physical therapy program that had a, a couple of a couple of schools, but mostly like in the Boston area. So that kind of piqued my interest because I was like, I'm, I'm into sports. That seems cool. You know, I can be like somehow tied to sports as a career without being a good athlete. Um, which I feel like a lot of the stories that people get into sports med and, um, but yeah, so I got, I, I applied to BU, got into their athletic training and the physical therapy program. And that was like a six year program. So I went through that. I got my bachelor's in athletic training, did all like the clinical work associated with that. And then went right into PT school and, um, ended up sticking around in Boston after that, getting my first job at like a local community hospital. And I, I think I always liked rehab more than the actual like on-field acute care stuff. So I never really pursued the athletic training part of my schooling, but kind of stuck with more of the rehab-based um, uh, experiences. Nice. And then you relocated to Boston Wellness. Was, that was recent, right? Yeah. So I've done a, some hopping in my like short career. So I uh, I graduated in 2013 got the job at the local community hospital, which was awesome. Like I, a lot of, it's funny. We see a lot of, we, get, we have a lot of students that come through Boston PT wellness and um, they're all looking for that perfect, like first job. And I'm like, it depends. Like there might be better cases, but I think you just have to get like your hands dirty. And so like working at like a community hospital was a really cool experience. But then like I learned that I kind of wanted a little bit more than that. I ended up going, doing a little cash-based practice at a gym, working at a private clinic in downtown Boston. And then about a year ago, uh, Zach and Steph at Boston PTA Wellness like poached me and they opened a new clinic up here in Winchester, Mass. And I've been here since then kind of running this kind of, or helping run this kind of more sports med clinic where we see a lot of high school students and, you know, just kind of your average, uh, you know, Joes that work and play sports and everything in between. That's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I follow like all of you guys on social media and um, I know Zach and Steph have Level Up Initiative as well. So you guys are doing big things with trying to help mm-hmm. uh, mentoring students and all. And uh, feel free, like if you want to tell a little bit about that, kind of uh, what you guys are trying to accomplish with helping students. Yeah, that was actually like the biggest pull, I would say, for me coming here was that um, I didn't have a great like access to bringing in students at all at my previous job. So this was like they were allowing me to kind of take over the director of uh, clin ed role here. So I work with the contracts of the schools like in new England and we take some other schools from out of state too. But um, so we do like the regular clinical internships for physical therapy school. um, And that's part of the system here. And as well as we work like almost like in connection with level up. So that level up is Zach's and Steph's uh, company where essentially it's like a free mentorship. And um, it's geared towards students. And we try to keep it across a broad spectrum, but it's mostly PT students. But we have chiros and massage therapists in as well. Um, And Zach and Steph's whole vision is to kind of just like fill in the gaps of where some of the didactic information might not supply the students with maybe the critical thinking and communication skills that ends up being important as a new grad. So it's kind of like a... Darius will love this is bridging the gap from uh, <laughs> learning stuff in school and kind of applying it in real life. That's awesome, man. I think I saw a post by Zach the other day that you guys had mentored like several hundred students at this point. Yeah. So we've gone through two cohorts. So, and every, every cohort we've added new mentors. Um, and so by this, yeah, by this point we've gone through a couple hundred students and with this third cohort coming up, we're, have a couple more mentors so it it should be growing you know ever slow slowly but it's cool because we can i think what zach loves about it and that i've really grown to like too is like you can reach a wide audience without having to like get too deep into academia i mean that it that would be a 
an awesome goal, but you know, with academia, maybe you might only be able to kind of connect to you know one class at a time where this is like a, bro- a broader, broader view on it. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. So I, I think it would probably be easiest if we just like transition from question to question. So Derek, uh, same question. How did you become a clinician and what was your journey? Um, I guess I had a little bit more of a roundabout journey. I, my undergrad degrees in biochemistry and I finished college originally thinking I wanted to go to medical school, but the personality associated with that was a bit much for me from the constantly trying to overachieve and get A's for the sake of getting A's. And I understand that's a dramatic oversimplification, but that was my impression at the time, still kind of my impression. So I went and worked as a biochemist for a year doing research and bench work. And my job was to genetically engineer E. coli to yield ethanol from corn cellulose. So it was a lot of bench work, constructing plasmids, um, doing a lot of basic genetics and realized that I hated the bench work because I would get to work in the morning and not say another word to a human the entire day. So I took a job bouncing at a bar as a side project where I got to not only uh, interact with conversation, got to practice my manual therapy skills occasionally as well and decided I wanted to go back to something where I did get to interact with people. So opted for PT school and then finished that up and did a orthopedic residency at the University of Florida. And they kept me around for about 10 years. And then I moved out here to Stanford Children's when my now fiance um, started her residency in pediatrics here. Awesome. Congrats on that, by the way. That's a fairly recent uh, engagement, right? Yeah, it's uh, Kim's been hanging that Damoclean sword over my head for quite a while now. <laughs> finally pulled the guys, trigger. Did you guys see Hamilton on the night that you got engaged? Yes, we did. How did you like that? It was excellent. It, yeah. it was awesome. I would like to see it with the original cast, but it, it was still phenomenal. Yeah, I saw it in New York, but it wasn't the original cast, but it was it was awesome. I loved it. That's pretty cool. And you guys have been together for a couple of years now, right? Um, you, you really gonna put me on the spot to make me remember how long? The odds of Kim listening to this podcast are next to zero. So let's just say five. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, that's cool. I'm happy for you guys. Uh, yeah, I mean, your um, journey definitely sounds pretty similar to. Uh, I think mine, as far as doing different stuff first in different fields before transitioning into the clinical world, um, I got my bachelor's from the University of South Carolina, which is why Derek and I should be arch nemesis pretty much for the rest of our lives. Um, did that in criminal justice, worked in law enforcement very, very briefly. Uh, I was a second generation, and I vividly remember my dad telling me, like, Hey, you might not want to do this for the rest of your life. And I was 21 and I was like, whatever, dad, I'm going to go try this out and did it for about a year. Um, I was also personal training on the side, realized I really enjoyed doing personal training work, but I felt like I knew just enough to really fuck people up. So I was like, uh, maybe I should study on this a little bit more. Went and got a master's in exercise science, did some research in the neuroscience field. Uh, with like MRI, fMRI, and then uh, worked in cardiology and then as a research assistant for physical activity for the track program at University of South Carolina, and then went for my doctorate in chiropractic and then got out in 2015 and opened a clinic here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. So it was a very roundabout uh, way of getting here. I don't think I figured out what I wanted to do until I was like 27. But um, yeah, it's been enjoyable since then it's interesting to hear like all of our journeys to to this point as far as how we are uh with practice and everything which kind of takes me into my next question for amato what has been the biggest influence on your career so far um yeah i kind of alluded to this in the beginning it was like half joking but it i think it's mainly the connections that i think i made initially through like the clinical athlete forum and um it's like the people that kind of pushed me, I think, to learn more and learn differently. Because I, I think the first few years out of school, you kind of 
without access to like a bigger community, you kind of get kind of stuck in your little like world. And so nothing against like the community hospital is that, but you know, if I worked there for 20 years without really venturing outside those walls, I definitely would not be where I am today. So between you, Derek, you know, so many other people, Sam, Bob, all, all the initial people that we kind of made friends with, I think like growing that network of people that keep you on your toes, I think was like huge. Um, so at this point, like I've, it's almost like I figured out like what my, passion and niches based on what other people were like interested in. I kind of like can carve out my own thing. And then Derek and I have talked about this in the past recently where it's like, then you get to kind of like rely on your network a little bit where it's like, you don't have to be the expert of everything. You know, you can kind of keep your generalist approach, but then it's like, I'm perfectly comfortable with being like, I know Derek has it locked down on youth training and youth sports. So I can like rely on that and so on and so forth. So I feel like, that's been like my biggest influence. And for me, I've lately just been diving deeper and deeper into like not only pain, but I've, I, my current, I think interest is more of like, how do we look at like the, the, the lived experience of someone who's in pain or recovering from an injury and how can we maybe apply both like a science and a philosophy to it? Is there a word for looking at the person's first person viewpoint of their experience? Yep, here comes your $10 word of the day. Uh, <laughs> I'm ready, man. Oh, here we go. It's only, how many minutes are we making in? 17, 15? Yeah, something yeah. like that. Okay, phenomenology. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> phenomenology, that's that's the word of the day right there. That's the buzzword of the day. No, yeah, yeah. I, I've been trying to, that's been like my current interest um, between, because like it has, a, I feel like it has a good connection between thinking about it in a philosophical way, but then there's like more recent science to kind of illuminate it a little bit more i think yeah and this is different from a phrenology if anyone is curious which <laughs> yes. is uh if i recall correctly like palpating the head for bumps to understand your psychological personality is that the correct definition for that yeah they used to look at skulls back in like the late 1800s i believe yeah, so phenomenology is a little bit different. Uh, but yeah, I've also been reading on that a little bit. And it's it's interesting to think of the first person kind of experience. And uh, this kind of is a little bit of foreshadowing for what this podcast will entail. But we will discuss such topics as far as philosophy and uh, kind of research on pain and then rehab and training, how all of these fields kind of intersect with one another and crisscross. And they're not as divergent as people often think. Uh, Derek, same question for you. What has been the biggest influence on your career so far? Well, I, I think the question is a little interesting because I have a feeling all of us are going to answer it, not so much as what, but who. And I think, well, I know I just happened to be right place, right time at the University of Florida in 2006 to 2008, because um, that's when Steve George, Mark Bishop, Joel Bialowski were doing a lot of the research essentially showing the structuralist approach to manual therapy wasn't supported and forging the relationships with those guys. And then having them as my mentor during my residency year was excellent. And to Amato's point, I think the biggest influence on most people's career is going to be that network of people. Because once I started into residency, I was fortunate enough to have Tim Shea as my mentor and he's still, you know, 11 years into practice. I still consider him that and standing beside him and being able to bounce ideas off of him all day. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better guy to sit there and check your bias and as well read as they possibly come. And then I also had DJ Kennedy, who was a PM&R physician at Florida at the time. He's now at Vanderbilt after a short stint at Stanford. He uh, left right after I got here. I'm starting to think he doesn't like me. Um, so I had a close physician relationship as well, who, you know, it's a different lens that we all view treatment through. And I think a lot of times we're all guilty of seeing it through our own worldview and not realizing that how much our training is influenced that lens and only by really discussing people with different or discussing these topics with people with different lenses. Can we really like, slowly gain some focus on the overall picture of things. Yeah, I think that's uh, all really good points. And uh, I think we all do have very similar answers to your point, Derek, about who has influenced us the most. Um, 
I think like for me, cause both of you guys are, are, are PTs and I'm kind of the, the guy on the outside, I think, <laughs> but, uh, which I know you guys don't look at me like that, but as the chiropractor, you know, the black sheep of the group, uh, going through that schooling process, I had a lot of questions and just a lot of unknowns and things that I knew that I didn't agree with, but I wasn't quite sure why I didn't agree with them. And I wasn't quite sure how I counter some of the points that were being stated in school. And I was really fortunate because I was finishing up. Um, I like walked early in August of 2015, went and did my last clinic rotation up here in Virginia. So we were already moving up here, did my last rotation, took my boards and was like gearing up to open my own practice. And right as this is happening, I heard about clinical athlete and I was like, oh, this sounds really, really cool. And it would be awesome to network with like-minded people. And it, you know, had the sports kind of spin on it. And so I joined up in November of 2015 and, and met people like Derek and Quinn Hennick and a lot of others there and, and Michael Amato and um, started having these kind of like public discourse discussions, both on the forum and then on the side via like text message and phone calls. And I started realizing that there were ways to figure out things for clinical practice that I had questions about. And there was there was ways from like an epistemological standpoint to acquire knowledge and use it in clinical practice, which was really important because I think it's really easy to be the most science-based person ever, but if you don't have pragmatic application, then it's useless. And so through befriending people like Derek, uh, it was just, you know, I give Derek a lot of credit because it was probably uh, annoying to deal with me, especially in like 2015, 2016, where it was just endless conversations of like, hey, I read this, what are your thoughts about this? And then he would reply back and it was just these endless conversations over and over and over again. So I'm very appreciative and I very much consider Derek a mentor and a friend amongst the many others that I met on the forum. Um, so I think that that's been a huge influence on my career for sure. And it continues to be, you know, since we've met everyone at Barbell Medicine and met Austin Baraki and Jordan Feigenbaum and others, I realized like, we're all reading uh, very similar research and we're coming to similar conclusions, but it's the application of what we're reading and how we go about applying it to our clinical practice in our setting. That, that's, that's really cool just to have those discussions with people. And um, it gives you a new way to think about things and have a different perspective, which I think oftentimes can be very difficult and it's easy to become dogmatic in our approach, um, especially when we're working with like clinician to patient in our own world. So, yeah. Um, Michael, how would you describe the crux of your clinical practice? Meaning like if you were to distill down what you do on a daily basis as best as you can, what are your kind of go-to things for clinical practice? Yeah. So I kind of think I already touched upon this in a way, but I mean, it's constantly evolving because it's funny. Like if you asked this question to me last year, it obviously would be different. I'm sure we can all kind of agree on that, but, um, you know, like six years into my, you know, again, early career, it's, it's funny how much you see that change. And I think the more and more I kind of get away from, uh, being a new grad is, um, is like finding this like simple approach while still, um, just kind of taking into account the complexity of dealing with patients. So I feel like in terms of my clinical practice these days, it's, it's as patient centered as I can make it. It's all about, who's coming in in front of me, you know, what seems to be the problem that they want addressed, you know, what, what is their actual experience of like what they're going through? So let's get back to the phenomenology. And it so happens that a lot of times it's pain, but I think we even like kind of maybe paint pain as like the simple thing, but cause you can have pain and not want to address it. So I feel like these days it's like, why, what are they actually suffering from? And, what is their experience of it and how can I take that and make a plan that where I can help guide them to the goals that they want to achieve. And it's like a pretty roundabout way of saying like, you know, what is their actual like physical goals? Why aren't they able to do it? And can I kind of guide them to a path where they can get back to doing what they wanted to do or become who they were once before? Um, but it's different person to person, which I think is why sometimes our views can get maybe too simplified on social media and then it becomes like hard to kind of, you know, speak to these specifics, which I, which is why I'm excited for this podcast. Cause I think we can kind of like get into those nitty gritty details. 
Yeah, that's definitely going to be one of the primary purposes because I agree. It's uh, if you look at a lot of social media posts, especially by like us three, which is probably minimal compared to many people on Instagram and Facebook, but it almost seems so simplistic that people are like, why am I paying you for this? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> I think it's through our understanding of what the research literature is showing about particular topics for clinical practice that it allows us to kind of cut away the bullshit, so to speak, and realize what is the uh, simplicities of clinical practice and how best can we help the human in front of us. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely something I think we can have a lot of conversations on and hopefully people find it useful and a bit of insight into why we do what we do. Yeah, and it's, and it's like it's interesting because like that sounds really generic and broad, but and at the same time, it's like having that background of knowing – like what you what you spoke to, like what is your knowledge base, and what have, what have you kind of gathered from your science understanding? But then being able to like pragmatically like put that into play with, in a way that Derek was joking earlier, like how can you make this so simple for them that a three year old could like understand it and also you know like improve from? Yes. Uh, for some background on that, we were having typical like first episode podcast technical issues with audio and Michael Amato is trying to explain to Derek about gain on the microphone, which instantly made me think of spinal tap and turning the volume up. Um, but Derek is probably any, I know, uh, there's no, probably I am (laughs) one of the more technically challenged 30 something year olds I've met, (laughs) but we figure it out. We get through it. We taught like, I don't even know how many seminars together in 2017 and uh, somehow we survived it all. So it's Derek, I've come a long way, but uh, there's still so much for me to learn. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, it's yeah. <laughs> so how would you describe the kind of uh, primary constructs of clinical practice for you, Derek, especially I'm very interested in this because you, I know at Florida uh, it was like outpatient orthopedics and you did, kind of a broad array of stuff, but now with Stanford, it's very pediatric. So I'm interested to hear your, your take on this. You know, when this question first was posed in the uh, podcast doc, my my initial thing, and even, you know, I think the, the lazy way of explaining this is education and exercise. And that's, it's alliterative, it's beautiful, but it mm. doesn't really encompass what the crux is because that makes it sound like I'm just prescribing things. And it's like, well, if I can learn you some things and get you stronger, you'll be good to go. But it, it is much more nuanced to that. And I think Amato used the word that I've definitely gravitated more towards over the past few years of like trying to understand the person's experience. And if we can understand that experience and, and reframe it and help them understand it, really, uh, I think that's one of the big parts to this. And then in in terms of exercise, I I think that's often the wrong way of looking at it as well. And I like this kind of like semantic shift towards movement. Um, Whereas we can all agree that exercise is beneficial. It's about as irrefutable as it comes in the literature, you know, telling someone to go exercise isn't, it never works. But if you can start getting people to see they can move a little bit more, that, that tends to be the more beneficial way. Um, and this kind of gets at why for those barbell medicine listeners, I'm not quite as active on the forum as I would like to be. And probably some would like me to be Jordan. Um, just because I think it's hard to really understand someone's experience in a forum setting. And there does have to be a little bit of a personal connection in order to really help people get over what they're going through or or help them see that it may not be as big of an issue. And a lot of times, you know, if someone has a tendinopathy post, it really would be as simple as like, okay, go follow this protocol. But like, that's not as simple as it is because there is like, well, I'm not able to train right now. And, or, you know, it's stopping them from doing something. And that really is when we start, I'm sure getting into the deep, deep, deep weeds of pain this whole not being able to do what you want to do is really a problem. And I think to your question about pediatrics versus adults, 
in adults, a lot of times it, they all have priors. They have expectations. They've, you know, watched some stupid show that told them that their adhesions are going to cause their back to explode. And you have to go through all of those beliefs and really kind of connect there and talk through. But in pediatrics, a lot of times it's kind of the opposite in that they really don't know what's going on and there's a certain level of uncertainty to it. So it really is like helping them see what's going on and what kind of their prognosis is. But there's also the fact of like, you know, I'm old and I'm sure some of our listeners can remember back to like middle school and high school when you had a two week relationship and broke up and it was the end of the world. And if we start talking about that and I have to tell an athlete, they're going to be out of sport for nine months. Like that's, that's devastating news for a teenager that can be, you know, 10% of their life. And so it's being able to, help them through that experience and understand the experience that they're going through. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a a good point, especially like the adults with priors versus, uh, you know, younger people who may not have those same experiences that they're drawing conclusions from. Um, So I think that's really interesting. I have very similar answers. Like I would say the crux of my, my clinical practice, um, like I, I own my own practice, so I'm very much in my bubble. Uh, but the two things that I tend to gravitate towards are educating people and then utilizing exercise prescriptions. But it is very easy to see those two things and think, what, that's that's all you do? Like it's this perceived value thing. Um, but I, I think if I were to use one word to describe it, it would be just uh, maybe humanistic approach. Just trying to help the person that's in front of me under and, you know, from my perspective, trying to understand them. And then where they're currently at and then where they want to get to be and how best I can facilitate that process. I think at its most basic level would be doing that. And I've done similar things that Derek was mentioning, like uh, I was a bouncer and a bar back. And uh, those are very interesting situations to observe um, human behavior and psychology for sure. Um, so I think the biggest thing with clinical practice that I would I would say is a crux is communication at this point, like learning to have conversations with the human in front of me and try to see from their perspective to Mike uh, Amato's point with phenomenology and, and figure out how to, to reframe what their experiences experiences. And the other thing I would say is like um, Derek introduced me to stoicism a number of years ago and uh, continue to read on it. And I think it has a lot of parallels as far as like from a pain perspective with getting people to see what they view as obstacles in front of them as challenges they can overcome and how I can help them with that. So I know we'll get into a lot of nuanced discussions on this topic down the road, and that's one of our hopes is to elucidate our approach to clinical practice a lot more. Amato, what would you say is the biggest difference between when you started clinical practice and now? Um, I think I think allowing for more like uncertainty and being okay with that. Um, I think out of school, it's easy to be like try to be black and white, you know, learn clinical prediction rules, learn treatment-based classification and, you know, kind of have a rough framework that you can kind of guide everyone through a funnel. Um, that You know, you kind of see those things work and then not work and you figure out all the little intricacies of like, oh, this doesn't seem to always align with how it's presented in either school or the research. And not to say that that stuff isn't important, but I think it's like allowing that room for the gray Um, and like, as I keep getting further along in my career, I think it's like, again, how do I use my knowledge base and like make it work in a simple pragmatic way where I feel like they can get, the patients can get what they need from the, from the experience of working with me and then be able to take that on their own in some kind of like independent way. Um, I just think I have like less rules that I'm following. Is that, oh, that makes any sense. I like, I like that. Yeah, no rules. That's, that's or less rules. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, you still want like you still want structure, but like it's like structure with flexibility built into it. I think is like the best way I can kind of see myself these days. Yeah, I think like um, schooling tends to do that to us. I feel like, uh, especially being very algorithm based. Like, oh, you know, 
the patient presents with X, Y, or Z, this is what you should do. And this is what's going to happen. And then you enter into the real world and you're like, holy fuck, like some people fit this algorithm. And then a lot of people don't fit this algorithm because it turns out dealing with humans aren't so straightforward. Uh, So, yeah. Yeah. It's almost like we're like messy. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, It just doesn't, it's not linear. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And getting comfortable with that, I think, is just like a process of which you only gather through experience. Um, you know, as like, and I see what the students coming in and through the level up mentorship, it's a hard thing for to learn early in your career and how to be okay with that and when to be confident with it and when to, you know, know how to be more certain and be less certain. Um, it's a hard thing to kind of work through out of the gate. Yeah, I vividly remember... Um acing like orthopedic examination test and neuro test and DDX test in school and be like, yeah, like I'm awesome at this. And then getting into clinical practice and realizing like, oh shit, like this doesn't actually work that way. Like I can't just do an orthopedic test and suddenly know exactly what's wrong with someone because it turns out a lot of those lack sensitivity and specificity, which are things we'll talk about down the road. But uh, that was tough. I think that was probably one of the hardest things for me was accepting uncertainty and getting comfortable in uncertainty for clinical practice. Derek, what would you say would be the biggest difference between when you started and now, and, and you're the, the senior of us three with uh, 11 years in clinical practice now? Yep. I, I was actually trying to think back to my, my young years back in the day and having trouble remembering back that far. Um, Don't hurt yourself. I know. It's a long way. Uh, this is kind of a hard question because I feel like a lot of this has been just a gradual change. And I'm sure like in the grand scheme, there is a large inflection point, but I feel like, especially through residency and the time at Florida, there was the environment was set up such that we were always challenging each other's beliefs. And, you know, I worked on our running medicine team at Florida and I tend to be in the biomechanics don't matter all that much camp. And one of my other clinicians is in the biomechanics matter a good deal. And, you know, being able to have those discussions back and forth with someone who, you know, you disagree with on a relatively fundamental point, I think was formative the whole time. And even going back to the clinical athlete side of things in the forum for like the manual therapy, obviously my stance is that manual therapy doesn't have much place, if any, in practice. And I do think there are exceptions to that, but they're few and far between. But seeing and discussing with people who are much more pro, you know, it it offers that same perspective that we talk about in like gaining a patient's perspective. Because the easy way of looking at it is like, well, why don't you just do this simple thing that will help you out along the way? Or why are you doing this thing that has no evidence to it? And it comes down to that kind of like why thing. But as far as to your question, since I completely went tangential there, <laughs> no worries. Um, really, I, th- I think one of the biggest things is softening my delivery. Um, I understand that I can be a little abrasive at times, and I've really tried to make it a point to study some of the people that are on social media that I think do a phenomenal job of having these hard discussions in a manner that's not an attack. And, you know, even from Barbell Medicine, like watching Leah interact on forums, you're like, man, you did an excellent job of explaining that and everyone likes you. Uh And then like, there's me and like, I'm sure I pissed somebody off today. And I think trying to get better at that is one of the things I'm still working on and hope to continue to work on through the rest of my career. Be less of an asshole. So... I'm yeah. having like nom flashbacks to CSM. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to go there. <laughs> no. um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think uh, I have a couple of answers to this one. Uh, when I was coming into practice, I had been taught a lot of manual therapy techniques and I knew that I wasn't on board with it, but I was still trying to formulate, you know, why and what was I going to do differently? And, um, I think that I realized that it was it was less of doing something to the patient and more of facilitating the patient to do something for themselves. And so that was my probably initial first step 
that's very different from when I was coming out of school to where I'm at now. And then also, I think very similar to Derek, um, as I was gaining more and more knowledge, especially about pain, I thought that uh, I, it was almost like trying to work with someone who had a lot of negative health habits. And I wanted to change all of them at once, like smoking and drinking too much alcohol or not exercising. I wasn't like, hey, let me just focus on this one thing and try to move them away from it a little bit. I was like, I'm going to change everything in this person's life. Uh, and that was not a good idea. And I screwed up a lot of conversations and pissed a lot of people off throughout the process. And then I realized like, oh, this is more about me meeting with them where they're at and seeing how I can facilitate them uh, as they are comfortable with it to move where they want to be. And I still struggle with that dance um, and figuring out what's the threshold that I can, you know, push someone without pushing too much, but pushing in a manner in which they realize they're capable of stuff whether I know they're capable, how do I convince them that they're capable of things? And so I, I hope to keep getting better at that. I think that is very much one of those experience card type things. Like it takes practice at having tough conversations with people and trying to work with them collaboratively versus from like a dictator position and imposing your will on people type thing. And then I'd say the other thing too is very similar to Derek and trying to reduce my asshole level <laughs> Uh, because especially like online interactions, it's very easy to get, uh, like heated and, uh, almost attacking in a manner. And, but I think those public discourse are necessary. Like someone asked me the other day, I was arguing about something with dry needling publicly and they were like, why are you doing this? Like, this has never been official. And so I thought about it for a second. I was like, you know, it's, it's, it's actually really selfish of me why I'm doing this and engaging in these public debates. It's to refine my argument but also I try to see their perspective and maybe they argue from a perspective I've not heard before, which most likely further refines my argument because at this point it's going to be tough to convince me on dry needling, but that's a whole nother discussion. Uh, but I think it's necessary. Like we need to have these public discourse uh, engagements with one another in order to hear each other's points, formulate our arguments, but also for the audience's purposes. So, Well, I, I think you make an interesting point there because that's part of the reason I really try and advocate for not using a lot of passive modalities as well, because it does force you to have the hard conversations with patients as well. Like you can use a lot of these tricks or whatever word we want to assign to them and you can get some immediate pain relief out of it. But, you know, if you look at it, it's not associated with long-term gains. And I think the three of us, the consensus stance is, we shouldn't be doing them. And I think that raises two points. One of which of like, it forces you to have the hard conversation with a patient. Like if we take away all the tools in your toolbox, if we rip down that good old bridge for the gap, like we have to walk the patient down the Canyon and up the other side. And that's a completely different journey than like, well, let's walk across this bridge where it's just as easy to walk back. And yeah. Then, I think that's a, uh, uh Sorry, Mike, go ahead. No, yeah, and Derek and I talked about this in the past with uh, alluding to certain papers, but, like, what happens when all those tools don't work? Or, like, you know, even, like, what happens when your education doesn't work? What happens when that exercise doesn't work? What happens when that tool doesn't work? And then you're left with, like, the face-to-face interaction with that person, and, like, can you handle that? And, you um, obviously I think, like, don't have enough certifications. That's exactly. right. You need you just need more the next letters, tool. Mike. Yeah, you need more the letters. next one and the next one. <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's, it's the challenging part of the job, but I think the rewarding part of the job is when you can like have that, like what's, I think like, uh, the way I've seen it described the best is like the blending of two horizons. Like you can kind of like meet the person somewhere along their kind of like point of view. You're not gonna be able to like totally understand them completely, but if you can like get on their level, like that is, I feel like the crux. Yeah. Um, well, being empathetic, right. And being able to relate and, um, make a connection for therapeutic alliance. Derek, you said something that resonates with me as far as the the whole bridge. And I was actually waiting. I was like, that's going to come back up. Uh, there's no way he's going to let that stand. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but, uh, the whole, like walking them down through the Canyon and back up on the other side, I think there's actually a really good visual. uh, And I hadn't thought about this until you said that. But the whole bridge argument is like, I constructed this bridge and you're going to walk across it, but I've, I've fixed the problem for you. 
uh, at least that's like the, the thought process, right? But if I go hand in hand with you and teach you how to walk through the canyon and onto the other side, in my mind, it wasn't me building a bridge. It was me facilitating the process so you now know how to attack the canyon next time it happens. And it will happen because it's life and that's how it goes. So one to me is reaching those long-term outcomes because you now have a new understanding of how to approach things and how to accomplish them versus walking back to the canyon and you're like, oh, fuck, where's my bridge? Let me go back to the bridge builder and help them let them build me a bridge again. Well, you know, it's I, I hate the bridge the gap analogy on a visceral level, but <laughs> – even like moving out to California, you know, I drove from Florida to Colorado to California and drove across the entire United States. And I think a lot of people, you know, for that, you're just going to fly, go, go to Orlando, hop on a plane, be in SF and four and a half hours later. And you miss a lot from that. Like, yeah, it's quicker. We got you there. But like the experience of driving through Kansas and, you know, going through middle of nowhere, Kentucky, like it changes your perspective and you get to see how other people live as well. Like if we spend all of our times in these big hubs where everyone like there's huge densities of humans, like you forget that like there's a large portion of the U S that there aren't that many people that live there. And I think, you know, stopping off in a town, I can't even remember the name of in Kansas, like you see, and you're like, this is how these people live. And it's not, good nor bad it's different and i think even to take that analogy into the pain side of things like it's their experience of people who are in pain isn't good or bad it's just different from what my own experience is and i'm going to learn a little bit from theirs and they're going to learn a little bit from mine but thinking that we need all these interventions that are essentially like the airplanes of travel like we miss a lot of the journey there yeah, I think the journey is what makes the long-term difference for people and, and reframing things for sure. Um, and I know there are going to be future episodes on, on manual therapy and uh, without a doubt, like we're going to get into those discussions. And uh, Derek is correct. Like our uh, consensus is very much um, anti-manual therapy, but it's not so simple as like, oh, the evidence just isn't that supportive of it for what people are claiming, but it's the long-term damage that many of the narratives that are utilized to drive those interventions does to a person's psyche and their thought process on, instead of walking through that canyon, I'm just going to get this bridge to fix things. So we'll definitely get into those topics for sure. Uh, I think now we really need to get into the important questions at hand for this podcast. Uh, Amato, what is your favorite alcoholic drink? Yes, finally. Um, so <laughs> if we're going to go not hard liquor, I'm going to say I'm biased towards like the New England style IPAs. The uh, <laughs> and I know they're looking, my favorites. <laughs> looking for your replacement as we speak. <laughs> See, this is the I'm going to have I'm going to use the cliche argument. You just haven't tried the right IPA yet. Right. Um, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> you really no, I would say yeah. of saying like well, my manual therapy technique, you haven't used that. We haven't studied that. So. Exactly. You, yes. haven't, you haven't studied Treehouse yet. Yeah. Um, well, but- <laughs> <laughs> there's a funny story to that uh, brief segue. Uh, I forget where Derek and I were it's at. In Boston. And, yeah. And I think you had Trillian, didn't you? It was, or, it what was, was Treehouse. Yeah. And he was like, dude, this beer is amazing. I know you don't like IPAs, but you're going to, you're going to enjoy this. It's like one of the top world beers. And I drank one sip and I was like, nope, not happening. And then we were in California at his place in Palo Alto and he had, um, Pliny the Elder. What was it? Yeah. And he was like, all right, this is one, like how many times is it one number one beer? Oh, God, I want to know a lot. Yeah. And he was like, you got to at least try this one. And there's a picture somewhere that he's got of me drinking it with the most sour face ever. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> I was like, nope. So to your point, Mike, I don't think it's possible that we're going to find an IPA that I just love. I'm just going to create a new course for you and we'll take it through it. There you go. <laughs> we'll, figure, we'll figure it out. Or now, and if I'm going to go, if I'm going to go hard liquor, then I'm probably going to say, um, uh, Probably just an old fashioned. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Derek? Um, 
beer. Um, I, there you I, go. I like, um, well, I, so fun sidebar here. I brewed with one of my buddies in Florida for the better part of seven or eight years. And, you know, I think part of that you learn from brewing is a good kind of analogy to communication as well. And like what parts of the process matter and what don't, but I think my favorite drink right now is probably as much as cliche is, is the new England IPAs. That tends to be what I'm gravitating towards, but I feel like some of that is a product of where I live right now. And yeah, which is funny because it's a new England IPA and there's hundreds of thousands of them on in the Bay. So <laughs> Yeah, you guys seem to have access to a lot of stuff that I wouldn't expect you to have access to. Yeah, I mean, it, we're Kim always asks me what I'm going to miss when we leave this place, and like the easy answer is the breweries, just because the scene here is so spectacular. Yeah, yeah. So before I came to Harrisonburg, my wife and I lived in Asheville, and Asheville, if you've never been, is probably one of the I would say one of the better well-known areas for good beer specifically like micro brews and stuff. Um, I would say living there was an awesome experience because I got to try a lot of different stuff and it turns out I'm mostly a porter and stout kind of guy. If you guys haven't realized that from the intro yet. Um, but I will try other stuff. Like I do, I was talking to Amato about this other day. I actually do kind of like sours, I think oddly enough. Um, but usually if it's bourbon barrel aged stouts, that's that's my jam for sure. And we have a local brewery called Brothers Brewing uh, that does a phenomenal release every year of uh, something called a Resolute, which is a bourbon barrel aged stout. And that's probably my go to for sure right now. I got one sitting in my closet waiting on me still. Um, and then if we're not talking beer, it would probably be uh, scotch and um I like a lot of different scotches. Probably my favorite would be, um, I don't know. There's all types uh, that I like a lot. But I think I'm similar as far as um, I'll try anything, but I, I won't. If I have to pick, it's going to be porter stouts and then scotch. Those are like going to be my top three. Now, will you drink like a heavy stout on like a hot summer day? That, that yeah, yeah. You will. Okay. Yes. See, that's crazy. Absolutely. That's yeah. <laughs> what we have yeah. filters for. No, I, I drink them year round. It doesn't. The weather doesn't matter at all. Yeah. It's all about context, Mike. Context. Ugh. I just have to manipulate everyone else's reality to fit my reality. Really. This and, is true. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last question: What are you reading right now, Amato? Perfect. So this is like a great encapsulation of who I am. I'm reading Rethinking Homeostasis by Jay Shulkin. Um, I think it was published like in 01. It's about allostasis. And it's like kind of like more of the early writings on it. Um, Jay Shulkin and Peter Sterling are big in that world. So I'm, I'm trying to actually, I'm doing like a guest lecture on allostasis in the next couple of weeks. So I'm trying to, trying to read up more on it. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about allostasis at some point in the future. And the other book I'm reading right now is uh, Nausea by uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, which is why that's a perfect encapsulation of who I am. <laughs> Just reading, <laughs> casually reading a scientific like textbook alongside a like existentialist book about somebody who is uh, disgusted by their own existence. <laughs> this sounds perfect. <laughs> Sounds like the best mix ever. Yeah, you know, you got to get into it. I sent uh, yeah. Mike Ray a copy of Camus' The Stranger, and I'll never yeah. forget he texted me like after he started. It was like, why the fuck would you send me this? This is the most depressing <laughs> book ever. It's like, yeah, it was it was Camus. tough. Uh, I actually found it the other day because I was like stacking up some books, and I came across it, and I was like, oh. F why do I still have this? <laughs> that was my favorite book I read in high school. I, I wrote like my senior English year, uh, English th uh, thesis on it. <laughs> oh, really? So like, yeah, it's, it's funny. It's like, it's like, uh, I remember really being into that stuff. And then when, when we, once you go away to like a, almost like a, you know, specialized kind of professional degree program, like that stuff just gets wiped out of the curriculum. And I totally disregarded anything close to 
like literature for a long time. So it's funny that I'm coming like back around to like the existentialism as like a 30 year old. I had like a brief thought to reread it. And then I quickly got rid of that thought and just put the book away and moved on. So. <laughs> See, if, if you're, if you're a real, if, if you're real, then you would uh, read it in, fr- in French and then you would truly understand it. <laughs> right. Right. There you go. <laughs> Derek, what about you? What are you uh, currently reading? Um, I channel surf books, so I have a few going right now. Um, I'm reading Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City by Matthew Desmond. It's on some of like the low SES housing stuff. Um, Becoming Human by Michael Tomasello. And then The Normal and the Pathological by George's, I'm not even going to try and pronounce his last name. Um, yeah. Amato, did you finish The Normal and Pathological already? I did. Um, it was yeah. excellent. Yeah. Very I'm, good. It's, it's an excellent book for a discussion on what is normal versus abnormal and how we frame that in explanations to ourselves and to our patients. Um, I would highly, highly recommend it. And then uh, Range, Why Generalist Triumph in the Specialized World by David Epstein just arrived this week, but Kim told me I have to finish a book before she'll let me start on that one. So she's like dangling it over my head right now. Oh, yeah. So I saw Jordan, not Jordan, Austin. I uh, was talking about that one on Facebook. I need to add that one because I've, I've read his other book. Uh, was it The Sports Gene? Yeah. Was the other one? Yeah, which is really good. I recommend that one to people. Uh, I thought that was a really good, good read. I am currently reading uh, Experiencing the Impossible, The Science of Magic, which is by Gustav Kuhn. Uh, and you guys, you guys have read that book, right, already? Yep. Yeah, no, I'm a slacker. I, I, put, I pushed to the side. Did you really? You didn't read that one? No, I got sidetracked by, um, I don't know, a couple of things. It was like a couple of, I got sidetracked by the MIT Press. That was a problem. I picked up too many books. Uh, back to the network. Well, right? So you can just I ask us. Exactly. It's, it's a good book so far. I, I like it a lot. Um, I like how it kind of fucks with your perception and like, um, reality and, and gets into kind of the nitty gritty of magic. And it's like, people are like, Oh, I've seen magic shows. Like I get it, but it talks about how magic works and why we fall prey to it. And, uh, it's pretty cool. So I like that book a lot. And then I tend to read it through the lens of pain and clinical practice and kind of the magic show that is clinical practice oftentimes. And then I'm also reading, uh, Epictetus with discourse, which is just stoicism, um, which I like a lot for life discussions and then pain discussions as well. And that's pretty much it right now. I think the next book I'm going to get was the one I know both of you guys have already read, which was, uh, is it called Spontaneous Brain? Oh, yeah. Oh, Good yeah. Luck. Oh, man. <laughs> nice. So those reactions tell me all right, right there. <laughs> I think Derek said the other day that it was uh, pretty tough to like it, get through. Like It was just challenging as a read. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had a book kick my ass that bad. Yeah, like I would go to the library with a notebook and take notes on it. Well, it would took it would take me about an hour to finish like a chapter. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking, maybe not looking forward to that now, but <laughs> <laughs> it was. I will give it a try. Excellent, excellent read. It's just dense and yeah. I, I think it would be one of those books that I'm going to have to go back to like four or five years from now and read again. And just maybe hopefully look at it and be like, man, look how far I've come in four or five years. I understand half the words on the page now. So same. I feel like there's like a lot of like, I mean, half the book is an ontological argument. Like it's, yeah. it, it's heavy, but, um, and there's a lot of space time concepts in there, which I also am not that well versed on. So Amato, what, uh, what would be ontology if you want to define that for the audience? So that would be like the philosophy of like existence, essentially, like um, like to be like how 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 are things like being in the world? Um, there you go. I don't know, did I butcher that, uh, Derek? No, that was spot on. Just the whole <laughs> metaphysics. Then we get started. Yeah, I think the original. Yeah. Yeah, the original ontological arguments were for like God, like how does God exist? So like based on that, you can make an ontological argument about like a chair, which is, yeah. you know, Does a very, a chair exist? yeah, a very typical, like philosophical debate. 
how do you know the chair exists? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so a lot of this will, uh, and I talked about this earlier in the podcast, but we will cross over a lot into philosophy, which I don't think any of us really look at these as separate fields at this point. I think we see them all very um, crisscrossing, so to speak. Well, you think about it like all of us want to be called doctor or most of us because I don't care. But like the whole PhD is a doctorate in philosophy of the subject. So, you know, it, it is anyone who tells you they don't want to get into the philosophy of things, you're kind of undermining the why of why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, that that statement and the that's just semantics statement to me is a quick way to send me like my blood pressure just skyrockets and <laughs> I want to break things. But, <laughs> uh, but we'll get into all of that stuff. Um, yeah, so that's awesome. I think this is probably a good stopping point for this first podcast, unless you guys got anything else you want to add. I think we're good to go. No, sounds good. Sweet. I'm excited. Yeah, this has been awesome. It's, I think it'll be good for uh, kind of everyone that's listening to just get an idea of who we are and uh, our journeys and how we approach clinical practice at this point. And then this podcast is, um, the hope is, is that we elucidate these discussions a lot more as far as it relates to pain what it is, um, how does it uh, apply to clinical practice and the human in front of us, what we try to do in clinical practice, rehab, training, because I know all of us like to, to train and exercise and enjoy that process as well. And uh, hopefully we can just help gain a better understanding of these topics together and then have them be pragmatically applied. I think the it's, it's fun to sit around and have these really complex and nitty gritty conversations, but I want people will have something to take away from them. So whether you're a clinician or a coach or an athlete, you can take this information and utilize it to your benefit and in, in life. Um, so yeah. Thank you guys for joining me today. Uh, next time we're probably going to have a guest on hopefully. Um, and we'll probably do guests from time to time. And then other times it'll just be us three just rambling on about whatever uh, we feel like talking about. But thank you guys for joining us on this podcast. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and a review if you are so inclined. And that is it for now. Mm-hmm.